Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, our God, what a privilege to have in our hands your holy word, refined in the fire and purified seven times. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things of your law. We pray that you would enable us to see the light of the glory of the gospel, that we would be able to rightly divide the word of truth so that we might know you, Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent, and that we might have all treasures of wisdom and knowledge in him, but also that we might refute the gainsayers and that we might correct with patience and teaching those who have been taken captive by vain philosophy and empty deceit, not according to Christ. Bless this lesson, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our lecture for today is Rich Lusk and Doug Wilson. And as we continue our series on the Federal Vision, we're moving on from Norman Shepard, who provides in some ways the doctrinal foundation and background for the Federal Vision, and now we're going to dive in to the teachings of some of the Federal Visionists themselves. And so there are a number of ways that we could have uh, approached this, but I thought it would be helpful to begin by studying the teachings of Rich Lusk, though he was not one of the speakers at the 2002 Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference in Monroe, Louisiana he very quickly got involved. He eventually, I think a little bit later, he became one of the pastors at the Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church in Monroe, Louisiana, along with Steve Wilkins. And he eventually took a pastoral call to a PCA congregation in Birmingham, Alabama. And there was concern about his doctrinal convictions because of his close association with the Federal Vision, his participation in a lot of these things. And eventually, both he and the congregation joined the CREC, Doug Wilson's denomination, the Confederation of Reformed Evangelical Churches. So my first point here, just in in kicking things off, is that Rich Lusk and his views are not easily distanced from Doug Wilson. Rich Lusk, in some ways, is obscure. You probably haven't heard of him, but his views are not easily distanced from someone that you may have heard a lot about, namely Doug Wilson. Lusk and Wilson contended side-by-side for the federal vision in a number of venues, including the 2003 Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference. This was the sequel to the the conference that kicked off the entire controversy the previous year, and the title of the second conference in 03 was Federal Vision Examined, and Lusk was at the center of that. He was a speaker. Uh, They also joined together, uh, Wilson and Lusk, at the 2003 Knox Colloquium that ended up producing a very helpful volume called The Auburn Avenue Theology, Pros and Cons, Debating the Federal Vision. And all of my quotations from Lusk are going to be drawn from his essay in that volume. 
And he, he, he and Wilson were on the pro side of the federal vision debate. They also tag teamed as co-authors of the 2004 book. The book title was The Federal Vision, 2004. Lusk and Wilson both authored chapters in that volume. They also tag teamed in the 2005 Christchurch Ministerial Conference in Moscow, Idaho in a session called Federal Vision Light or Dark. We already looked at that where Wilson represented the light version, the amber ale, Federal Vision, and Lusk was there to represent the oatmeal stout, the dark side of the force. But they, they, they joined together in, in discussing that issue there. And also they both signed the 2007 Federal Vision Joint Statement, which we're going to look at in a subsequent lecture. Lusk and Wilson are both ministers in good standing within the CREC, the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. They were originally the Confederation of Reformed Evangelical Churches, and I think they just wanted to sort of remove the Confederate element of that, I'm not sure. But uh, now they're the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, a denomination started by Wilson. If you listen to Wilson's White Horse Inn interview with Michael Horton and company, which is available online, I think it was 03, 04, 05, something in that range. They asked Wilson about the origin of the CREC. It was started by Wilson, and now it's over 100 congregations throughout the world, but it was started by Wilson and his church in Moscow, Idaho. In any event, we shouldn't assume that the CREC is in agreement with Wilson on everything. I think they rebuked him a few years back for some foul language that he used on his blog, something like that. I, I, so they're not always in lockstep, but he's definitely the most influential person. I think he even admits to having uh, co-authored or authored their doctrinal statement. So very close ties there with Wilson. It is fair to call it his denomination in a loose sense. And they received Lusk and his congregation out of the PCA, as I mentioned, when the transfer of Lusk's credentials was initially blocked by the PCA's Evangel Presbytery, and they blocked it over concerns regarding his federal vision theology. And I think that was in 05 that all of that took place. So you could, if you think of it this way, the PCA, even the PCA, right, with, you know, a lot of problems in all of our denominations, but even the PCA was not okay with, with this individual and blocked his transfer. So he joined the CREC. Now, all of the subsequent quotations in this lecture were taken from Lusk's contribution to the Knox Colloquium in 2003. And Wilson said concerning all of the articles on the pro-federal vision side, which would include Lusk's article, he said, speaking on behalf of the entire pro-federal vision side in the debate, quote, we understand ourselves to be in the middle of the mainstream of historic reformed orthodoxy, end quote. And you can see in the footnote there, the quote from Wilson in his opening statement for that debate. In our view, all the positions represented in the current discussion, as well as some others not currently engaged, are part of the historic reformed world and are orthodox and Christian. Moreover, we do not regard their positions as recent innovations, but we are also happy, not surprisingly, to accept our own position, call it what you like, 
as part of this historic reformed mix. He goes on, and this is the quote that I read, but again, it's helpful to hear it, uh, because everything we're going to see from Lusk, this is what Wilson is saying, thumbs up, historic reformed orthodoxy, quote, we understand ourselves to be in the middle of the mainstream of historic reformed orthodoxy. And then he says, for the particulars, we would refer the reader to the various papers, and that would include Lusk's article, a response to the biblical plan of salvation, which had been um, a contribution from Morton Smith, president of Greenville Seminary at the time. Lusk is responding to Smith's article, which is just a pretty basic, no-nonsense summary of the Westminster Confession's teaching on the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and justification by faith alone. Lusk's response to the biblical plan of salvation. That's included in what Wilson says is part of the historic Reformed world, the historic Reformed mix, and in the middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy. And he actually refers us to that volume and to those articles, including Lusk's. So Rich Lusk and his views are not easily distanced from Doug Wilson, and they can't be distanced from the CREC, which maintains Lusk's credentials as a minister in good standing, despite what is said in this article. Second point, in his contribution to the colloquium, Lusk defends Norman Shepherd and denies that God's law revealed at Sinai required perfect obedience. Now, we spent three lectures on Norman Shepherd, so we're not going to rehearse that, but we saw how he explicitly injects our faithful obedience into the equation of justification. Abraham was, how was he justified? His own faith was imputed to him as fulfilling the condition of righteousness. You can go on Sermon Audio and download the handout with all the direct quotes. So Shepherd is promoting a gospel of works, and all I can say is go read the quotes, because they're they're very clear. And the people that defend Shepard won't bring out the quotes. They never want to show you the quotes. I've shown you the quotes. And Lusk says this, quote, opponents of Shepard thought his insistence on the fruit of the Spirit as a requirement for eschatological justification was legalistic. But when one considers that Shepard has totally purged his theological program of merit, and therefore of even the possibility of legalism, it becomes obvious how absurd this kind of objection is, end quote. So in this contribution that Wilson says is in the middle of the mainstream of Reformed Orthodoxy, Lusk is defending Shepard's view of justification, and he's taking the utterly naive perspective here of saying just because Norman Shepard takes out the, the vocabulary of merit that it can't be legalism. In other words, we saw Shepard says, your justification is conditioned and contingent upon your personal obedience to God's law. He says that. But he says that's not technically meriting it because God graciously makes that the case. Well, uh, if it looks like legalism and walks like legalism and quacks like legalism, it's legalism. But Lusk takes this naive perspective and Wilson seems to affirm that. Now, again, Lusk, quote, the law did not require perfect obedience. It's unbelievable 
how he could say this. The law did not require perfect obedience. It was designed for sinners, not uncalled creatures. Thus, the basic requirement of the law was covenant loyalty and trust, not sinless perfection. This is why numerous sinful but redeemed people are regarded as law keepers in Scripture, end quote. Now, cutting to the chase, I don't want to spend too much time on this. It's clear if you read the article that Lusk is very confused. And again, why anybody is asking him to speak on this topic is, is beyond me. If you look at his Wikipedia bio, uh, he does have a BS degree from Auburn University. He has an MA in philosophy. I'm hoping that maybe Wikipedia is off there. Maybe he has a, a seminary degree or, or some kind of theological degree. Maybe he does. Okay? But in his article, he seems very confused about the basic distinction between the Mosaic Covenant as a whole, as an administration of God's covenant of grace in a holistic totality, And for reference to that, we could go to Psalm 103, verse 7 and following, where it says, God made known his ways to Moses and his acts to Israel's race. And it goes on to speak of God forgiving sins and being compassionate like a father. And so you can use this against people who think the Mosaic covenant as a totality was an administration of the covenant of works or was somehow less than gracious, right? So we would agree that the Mosaic Covenant as a whole included the law to convict people of sin, the gospel foreshadowing Christ to come in the ceremonies, okay? It it had the promises, the prophecies, the sacrifices, circumcision, other types and ordinances to point to Christ who is yet to come, as our larger catechism says. So, yes, the law in that holistic sense of the whole mosaic covenant the whole economy of grace under moses leading up to christ yes it was not merely an economy that said keep the law perfectly and be justified but it said it you can't keep the law you the the law requires perfect obedience but you can't keep it so there is a savior a lamb of god who's going to take away your sin So in its totality, the Mosaic Covenant preaches the law and the gospel in the same way the New Covenant does. In, for instance, the book of Romans, because what is Paul doing in the book of Romans? He's quoting the Old Testament, right? But Lusk and many federal visionists confuse that gracious character of the Mosaic Covenant holistically, entirely, with the idea that the moral law, that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the thou shalts and thou shalt nots that summarize God's revealed will to humanity, that somehow that does not require perfect obedience. The Mosaic Covenant offered salvation by grace through faith in the mediator to come, who himself would fulfill the condition of perfect obedience. So the Mosaic Covenant is not saying obey God perfectly and be saved, but the moral law revealed at Mount Sinai in its particular identification as the revealed will of God, definitely required perfect obedience. That's why the Old Testament was pointing people to Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, because very clearly the law requires perfect obedience for justification. And then once you're justified, the Lord who sanctifies you, as it says in Leviticus, will bring forth the fruits of obedience, and that won't be perfect. But again, it's just basic justification, sanctification. It's revealed under Moses. But, but the whole premise of it 
is that in particular, the moral law does require perfect obedience. Paul quotes the Old Testament, Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith, or better translated, the just by faith, those who are righteous by faith, shall have life. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Okay, so it's very clear that the law requires perfect obedience for justification. That's why the Old Testament as a whole pointed people to Christ and enabled sanctified obedience, which of course is imperfect. Romans 3 would say the same thing. Now understand at Mount Sinai, we we need to not limit the role of God's law in an unnatural way. Again, this is where Lusk falls prey to the temptation to pick one of the three uses of the law instead of understanding all three, right? If you're happy and you know it, okay, you're going to do all three. So at Mount Sinai, what are the three uses of the law? You've got the evangelical use of the law that says you have to obey God perfectly or you're damned, therefore you need Christ to save you. Okay, that's at Sinai. The smoke, the fire, the, all, all of the theatrics showing God's holiness and wrath because we know from 1 Corinthians 10 with most of them God was not well pleased and they died in the wilderness so most of them are unconverted. So we would expect the first use of the law to be part of the equation. The Second use of the law to restrain evil by way of application to society and civil government. The second use of the law was clearly in play because right after the Ten Commandments, you get these civil judicial laws that God is revealing on the basis of the moral law. And so Israel in their society is to apply God's law across the board in terms of restraining sin. The third use of the law is as a rule of life for justified, sanctified believers. And so at Sinai, God is saying, I'm the Lord who redeemed you out of slavery in Egypt, and now here's my law that you can keep this way of righteousness and blessing. All three of those elements are present in the narrative surrounding the Ten Commandments. And it's important for us to understand that in the Mosaic Covenant, all three are relevant. So you can't look at the Ten Commandments and say, oh, it's only pointing us to Christ, but it has nothing to say about society or about the Christian life. On the other hand, you can't say it's all about society, but it doesn't reveal, it doesn't point us to Christ, or it doesn't give us a rule of life, so on and so forth. We need to be balanced and recognize all three. And if we recognize all three, then according to the first of those three uses of the law, the law did require perfect obedience. That's just basic Reformed theology. And to say the law in no sense required perfect obedience undercuts the entire doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because if we don't need a perfect obedience to be right with God, if the law doesn't require that, then we don't need Christ our own sanctified imperfect works will, you know, could then be posited as the solution. Now, in addition to this, understand just the, the total incoherence of saying the law did not require perfect obedience. Think about that for a second. 
okay, then which part of the law wasn't required? Right? If the law doesn't require complete and total obedience to the law, then whatever aspects aren't required aren't part of the law. I mean, this is, this is almost, I mean, I, I seriously, I struggle in coming up with material for these lectures and just wrapping my mind around what some of these men are saying, but how could the law not require something in the law? So if the law is spiritual and it deals with our thoughts and our words and our actions, then by definition, everything in the law is required because if it wasn't required, it wouldn't be part of the law. It wouldn't be law. It would be the ten suggestions. So it's just not only is it unbiblical, it's incoherent. But yet Doug Wilson says it's uh, in the middle of the mainstream of historic reformed orthodoxy. I'd love to get that reading list. Third point, Lusk regards the new perspective on Paul as fully compatible with the historic Reformed faith. Lusk regards the new perspective on Paul, which we talked about in a previous lecture, as fully compatible with the historic Reformed faith. You can see here, by the way, this phrase, historic Reformed faith, is getting thrown around all over the place. But listen to Lusk, quote, The best theologians in the so-called New Perspective on Paul movement are simply recalling us to the original meaning of the texts in their historical setting. Now, let's refresh our memory about the New Perspective on Paul. There are three aspects to it. The first is that the Judaizers, the Pharisaical professing Christians that came into Galatia that uh, are addressed at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, The Judaizers were not legalistic, thinking they could be justified by moral obedience to the Ten Commandments, law-keeping, good works, but rather they were ethnocentric, thinking that they were justified by ceremonial inclusion in the covenant people of God, circumcision. So they were ethnocentric, not legalistic. They had a problem with Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles being included in the church, but Paul's not repudiating them for thinking that they have their own moral righteousness in the sight of God, according to the new perspective on Paul. Secondly, the phrase works of the law in Paul's polemical writings and his epistles, that phrase works of the law refers to ceremonial badges like circumcision, not moral law-keeping. So it's ethnic, it's ceremonial, it's the works of the law by which they think they're justified is not dealing with good moral works they're doing to be acceptable to God. And thirdly, right, so they've redefined the, the Judaizing position, they've redefined the works of the law, but now they have to redefine righteousness and justification, which they say is not individual salvation. You're declared righteous and made right with God and reconciled to God individually, forensically, judicially, legally. Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. It's soteriological. In other words, it's about your personal salvation. No, they say justification means covenant membership. It's relational. It's corporate. It's ecclesiastical. It means you're now a member of the church. So the controversy was, hey, You can't let Gentiles join the church without circumcision. Not, Gentiles can't be saved from sin without circumcision. Now, this is recycled popery. Listen to Calvin, Galatians 2.21. Quote, Hence it follows 
that we are justified by His grace, therefore not by works. The papists explained this in reference to the ceremonial law, but who does not see that it applies to the whole law? If we could produce a righteousness of our own, then Christ suffered in vain, end quote. That's Calvin's commentary on Galatians 2.21. So the new perspective on Paul actually isn't that new. It's just Rome repackaged as so much that we see in the church today is. But this is the, the, new, the old new perspective. Calvin had to deal with it in his day. It's a Roman Catholic teaching that tries to undermine the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, the best theologians, according to Lusk, are just recalling us back to the Bible. And let's continue to read these quotes. Quote, Paul's anti-Judaic polemic thus cannot be equated with the Reformer's anti-Romish polemic. Okay, let's stop there. Do we understand? If Paul's attack on justification by works is not dealing with the same question that Rome is teaching, the same issue of being made right with God by your moral and sacramental works, because Rome brings in baptism, just like the Judaizers brought in circumcision. In fact, Norman Shepherd brings in baptism, just like the Judaizers brought in circumcision. So, of course, it's both. It's moral and ceremonial. But if we say that Paul, in those writings, in Galatians and Ephesians, is not directly addressing that issue, okay, then there is no Protestant Reformation. There is no Martin Luther. There is no John Calvin. And the whole world is left in darkness, Because this is the hinge of the entire Protestant Reformation. And to say that Paul is not addressing that issue is a declaration of war on the Reformed faith. No question about it. There is no Reformed faith if this is not what Paul is addressing. And it's very clear in Shepherd, and I think you can read between the lines with the Anglican bishop, N.T. Wright, that they have an ecumenical desire for Rome and Protestants to come together. And so if they can knock out Paul's polemic against self-righteousness and reclassify it, now there is nothing that separates us. Continuing the quote here. No doubt at certain points the Reformers succumb to eisegetically reading their debates with Rome back into Paul's debates with the Judaizers. While while there are analogies, there are also important differences. The Reformers were concerned with matters of individual soteriology and assurance. Paul's concerns included those things. You see the sales tactic, you know, it's like Obama. You can keep your doctor, I promise. You know, Rich Lusk, you can keep your doctrine of justification by faith alone, I promise. Uh, We're just going to take away the exegetical foundation for it, but, but it's still there, don't worry you know, the thief says, I'll bring your wallet back. I just want $1 bill. I'll bring it back in five minutes. Just give it to me. Frightening. Anyway, Paul's concerns included those things, but were much broader. He was concerned to show that the great redemptive historical transition had taken place and the Judaic typological childhood phase of redemptive history had given way to worldwide fulfillment Uh, the worldwide fulfillment mature phase. He was concerned with the new identity and configuration of the people of God. In Christ, all things were new. 
old things, including the good but temporary Torah or law, were passing away. By refusing to acknowledge that the Torah had passed away in the death of Christ, the Judaizers were perverting its true intent. And by Torah, he's focusing on the ceremonies here. They were insisting that the new people of God continue to mark themselves out in the old way, namely by the now-defunct badges of Torah. According to Paul, the Torah was good, but it could make nothing mature or complete. He cross-references Galatians 3 and 4 and Hebrews 10 verse 1. Now, what's he doing there? He's confusing Paul's sermonic letter to the Hebrews, which is dealing with this theme, because it's a bunch of people that do believe in justification by faith alone, and he doesn't have to address that issue, but they're clinging to the old covenant ceremonies, and so that's his emphasis. Hey, the law doesn't bring about the new full-fledged reality of the new covenant. So no doubt Hebrews 10.1 is making that point, but the problem is he's equating that with Romans and Galatians and with the Judaizer controversy, which is about something very, very different. In fact, Acts 15.1 tells us what it was about. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't join the church. It doesn't say that. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, uh, you can't be incorporated into the covenant people of God by way of baptism. And No, it doesn't say that. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's what it's dealing with. It's not ecclesiastical, it's soteriological primarily. It has implications there, but, but primarily it's about personal salvation as the reformers taught. And if you compare Romans 10.1-4 with Hebrews 10.1-4, you'll see a radical difference Romans 10, 1 through 4 deals with personal salvation, being right with God, choosing personal self-righteousness versus Christ's righteousness. And Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 makes all of those points about typology and fulfillment and the law and its ceremonies not making things perfect. So you can look at that. But by the way, as I mentioned, justification by moral works naturally and generally leads to justification by ceremonial works. So why is it that the Jews are clinging to circumcision? Same reason Shepherd and Lusk, we we could look at his teaching on baptism, the same reason they're clinging to baptism with an undue emphasis on the efficacy of baptism in our salvation. The reason is because if you held yourself to the moral law as a basis for your faithfulness, you would eventually get discouraged. So you need something to come in to, to ease the tension and enter the sacraments. So uh, these two things work together. Uh, another quote, why the new perspective matters. This is the, the heading supplied by Lusk. Going the corporate redemptive historical route with Paul does not mean the 16th century soteriological concerns get lost in the shuffle. So there you go. You can keep your doctrine. Rather, it means they get recontextualized into a much larger, more holistic framework. The reformer's attack on late medieval semi-Pelagianism may be regarded as a second-order application of the Pauline text to a particular issue at hand, end quote. Now, he's saying you can go new perspective and still refute semi-Pelagianism, but notice how he's very subtle there. 
he's shifted the goalposts because what he needs to be saying is that the reformers' attack on justification by works is a second-order application. But notice he slips in their attack on semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism deals with total depravity and the need for regeneration before faith. And a guy like Lust would totally agree with total depravity and the need for regeneration before faith. He's not Arminian in that sense. So what he's basically saying is you can be new perspective and still maintain the reformed view of regeneration. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about justification by faith alone. But you see how he he redefines the debate. The reformers' attack on justification by works would not be retained if we accept new perspective. Again, quote, to the extent that reformed Protestantism has individualized the message of salvation and to the extent that N.T. Wright, J.D.G. Dunn, and others call us back to a corporate view of salvation, it does indeed look like a different gospel is being proclaimed. Huh, interesting. It looks like it. Pay no attention to the heretic behind the curtain. It looks like a different gospel. Lusk. But these, quote, different gospels are not really at odds. I'm sorry, that just sounds like something you would hear uh, in a tree in the garden. It's, it looks like a different gospel, but uh, no, these are not different gospels. Or, or if they are, these, quote, different gospels are not really at odds any more than eggs and omelets are at odds. To steal another of Wilson's illustrations, Wright gives the gospel a broader sweep since he makes it clear that the corporate includes the individual But compared to our truncated version of the gospel, it looks really different. The problem is our myopia. We've looked at the gospel from about two inches away for four centuries. It's an attack on the Reformed Protestant faith. He's calling it myopic. He's saying that it's truncated for the last four centuries. And our long-distance vision is dysfunctional. Wright and others, meanwhile, are asking us to look at the gospel from 30,000 feet up. Sure, it looks different, but that's to be expected. The new perspective never denies that Paul actually taught what Luther and Calvin claimed, namely, sola gratia and sola fide. Now, that's deceptive because they do deny the doctrine of justification. They deny imputation altogether. That is a deceptive statement. But again, you see this sales pitch. You can keep your doctrine even though it looks like a false gospel, another gospel, it's not. Looks can be deceiving. N.T. Wright, I have a number of quotations in the footnote. We're not going to go back and read those, but he repudiates the idea of any type of imputation of righteousness to the believer. But supposedly that's part of the historic Reformed faith. And Wilson, having read this article, says this is mainstream Reformed orthodoxy. Okay. By the way, imputation, where do we get that in the Bible? Let's just remind ourselves here. Romans 4, 6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Abraham was justified by faith, verse 3. And David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So that's inspired Scripture saying in justification, God imputes 
righteousness to the believer apart from works. So the idea of imputing righteousness is not a debate that we can have unless we set aside a commitment to the Bible. If you're going to sit here and debate and say, well, imputation isn't necessary, it's possible that it didn't happen or it didn't happen, you are directly denying an inspired verse of the Bible. Romans 5.19, well, Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, okay? So... We don't have time to get into all of the uh, exposition here of verse 12, but this is universally among Reformed commentators and, and Protestant, well, let's just say confessional Reformed theologians. They would regard this reference to all sinning because all sinned as everyone sinning in Adam, right? The New England primer. Uh, in, Adam, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, Okay? So when it says because all sinned, it's saying that we sinned in our father Adam. That his sin represented us and therefore we're regarded as having disobeyed. Because he disobeyed as our representative, we're regarded as having disobeyed and we receive the guilt because we're regarded as having actually disobeyed in him. Verse 14 says Adam is a type of Christ to come. Now look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made or constituted sinners. Okay, so what did we learn in verse 12? That Adam's disobedience was reckoned to us. We disobeyed in him by way of covenant representation. We're regarded as having disobeyed in his his disobedience. And therefore, we are constituted sinners and made liable to God's wrath. That's the mechanics of this covenant representation. Notice the second half of the verse. So also by one man's obedience, that's Christ, many will be constituted righteous. So if I disobeyed in Adam, and therefore I'm guilty and deserving of judgment, this is saying in like manner, when Christ obeyed, I'm regarded as having obeyed in him, And therefore, having obeyed in him, I have righteousness unto eternal life. Verse 21. So grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. So in Adam's sin, I'm regarded as having disobeyed and and am under judgment and guilt. And in Christ, if I'm a believer, I'm regarded as having obeyed. That's the imputation of Christ's obedience and his righteousness which constitutes me righteous. That's explicit teaching concerning the imputation of Christ's obedience to the believer. Now, the last quote under point three. It may, this is Lusk, it may calm fears to explain why some theologians today, e.g. Wright Garlington, still squarely within the Reformational tradition are suggesting the imputation of Christ's righteousness isn't a necessary formulation to preserve the purity of the Pauline and Protestant gospel, end quote. So he's, he's saying that to deny the necessity of imputation of Christ's righteousness and justification, to deny the necessity of that is squarely within the reformational tradition. 
Now, we've seen it's squarely out of accord with explicit statements of the Bible. And certainly we've seen already in our previous lectures that it's out of accord with the the Reformed tradition, the Reformational tradition. But this is what he's saying. Now, we're going to put this on hold and deal with points 4, 5, and 6 in our next lecture. So I want to come up for air here and just conclude heading to the end of our lecture outline. I want to ask the question, and I'll probably do this at the end of the next lecture as well. But this, this is the question that I have. And you can see the quotes in the, footnote, in the footnote from N.T. Wright where he calls imputation a cold piece of business, almost a trick of thought performed by a God who is logical and correct, but hardly one we would want to worship. Blasphemy. So this blasphemy, according to Lusk, is part of the Reformational tradition, and uh, it's important, he says, and it helps us better understand the gospel, and Wilson says this is in the middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy. Now here's the question. Why won't Doug Wilson or the CREC go on record to condemn Rich Lusk's false teachings? That's the question. We haven't even looked at some of them. But he's publicly promoting blasphemous heresy out of the new perspective. And Doug Wilson read the article and refers us to the article and says it's mainstream Reformed Orthodoxy. Why won't Doug Wilson stand up and repent and retract these statements and go on record condemning Rich Lusk's false teachings? Why won't he do that? He knows what Rich Lusk said. He knows that he's publicly advocated for it. He's given some really weak attempts to apologize for very general things in terms of federal vision, to distance himself from it, but he hasn't actually spoken to this issue. Why won't he? Again, Doug Wilson's blog post on January 17th, 2017, Federal Vision No Moss. We've already looked at that uh, in, in greater detail in other, uh, even in the opening part of the outline. But it says, this statement represents a change in what I call what I believe. It does not re- represent any substantial shift or sea change in the content of what I believe. Again, it does not represent any substantial shift or sea change in the content of what I believe. So what he believed when he made these statements affirming Lusk, What he believed was that to deny imputation, to affirm the new perspective and the teachings of N.T. Wright, that that was mainstream Reformed orthodoxy. That's what he believed then, and he has not changed the content of what he believes. We'd like to hear more from from Mr. Wilson. Hey, Mr. Wilson, we, we need a statement from Doug Wilson. And if he doesn't give one, then we have to assume that it's because he does not regard Lusk's views as false teaching, but as orthodox Reformed teaching. Now, what about the CREC? Doug Wilson's denomination, which he helped to found, you go to their website under documents, you click on it, and right front and center, there's almost an advertisement, a link to this official CREC statement on the Federal Vision from 2004. Quote, By the way, this was written, it was approved by the whole presbytery, the whole denomination, but it was written 
by Randy Booth, who's an advocate of the federal vision. So brace yourself. Quote, the CREC is a broad confederation of reformed churches, and thus it represents a variety of views within the scope of historic reformed thinking. While some of our member churches and some of the officers in these member churches hold to various aspects of the Federal Vision School of Thought, other members hold differing views. Nevertheless, both positions fall within the pale of historic Reformed theology. The CREC, like other Reformed denominations, represents a range of theological thought and practice. The Constitution and Confessions of the CREC define the parameters of our confederation, end quote. And you can see this is, they made this statement when they were a confederation, but now they're a communion. But the statement remains the same. Both positions, that is, including the federal vision, fall within the pale of historic Reformed theology. Can you trust a denomination that says that what we've just heard from Mr. Lusk is Reformed? It's part of the Reformed tradition, and it's in the middle of the mainstream of Reformed orthodoxy, and no action needs to be taken to hold Mr. Lusk accountable for these teachings and get him out of the pulpit and bring judicial action. Can you trust a denomination that refuses to take those steps? Is that a denomination that reflects what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1? And I'll close with this. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, or I say again, Paul says, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Any questions before we pray? Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you all praise and honor and glory, and we thank you for revealing to us the true faith of the gospel. This is not something that we invented, nor something that we received uh, as a reflection of our own virtue in any sense. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were yet children of wrath, just as the others, we were raised up in him. We were counted righteous through his obedience. And we were welcomed into the family of God as your beloved children. We pray, O Lord, that those who trouble and pervert, those who speak smooth words, uh, but whose tongues are sharp as a sword, we pray, Lord, that you would reclaim them, that you would chastise them, that you would bring proper discipline and accountability in the body of Christ so that nothing but the true gospel of grace would be proclaimed from the pulpits 
of those churches who profess your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.